0: I say, everything's going to be alright. I said everything's going to be alright. Right, everything's going to be alright. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, August 19th, 2016. This week is episode 427. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and we're going to reach back into the archives for a show we did on April 10th of 2015 with Dr. Jack Gilbert of Argonne National Lab. We talked about the microbiome of the indoor environment, one of the early uh, extensive shows we've done on microbiome. Well done, and uh, looking forward to listening again. I'm on vacation this week. We'll be back live next week, so enjoy the show. John Don products, where restoration and abatement
1: contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net.
0: And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us.
1: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: All right. Dr. Jack Gilbert, he earned his Ph.D. from Unilever and Nottingham University in the United Kingdom in 2002. His postdoctoral training was at Queen's University in Canada. He subsequently returned to the U.K. in 2005 to the Plymouth Marine Laboratory as a senior scientist until his move to the Argonne National Laboratory and the University of Chicago in 2010. Dr. Gilbert is the group leader for microbial ecology at the Argonne National Laboratory and associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolution at the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago, associate director of the Institute of Genomic and Systems Biology, and a senior scientist at the Marine Biological Laboratory. I think we've got some intro music for Dr. Gilbert. Bacteria. Cliff, I don't know where you find these, but it was good. <laughs> Let's see if we've got Dr. Gilbert on the line. Absolutely, yes. That's That's very good. interesting song. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, we were looking at it, it was kind of funny. We um, It had like 800 views on YouTube, so Cliff was one of the few that have seen it so far. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's great to have you with us. I know you're a busy guy, and, and we're really happy you could pull away and join us today. What? Tell us a little first about what Argonne National Laboratory is.
2: Oh, yeah, great. So Argonne National Lab is one of the Department of Energy's national facilities. So these are, these are laboratories around the country, um, which uh, were set up to try and focus scientific research in America and bring the best and the brightest to um, tackle the real tough problems.
0: How many are there?
2: Um, there are, I believe, there are about eight or nine national laboratories around the country. Okay. is one of the oldest. Um, it was set up really to deal with um, Enrico Fermi's nuclear reactor that he tried to build under the uh, the football pitch at uh, the at University of Chicago. Hmm. When the mayor had decided he'd had enough of having a nuclear reactor in the city, they moved it out to the suburbs.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And, and how did you get your early interest in microbiology, or is that something that um came later in life
2: it actually came later i started out as an entomologist and then i became interested i studied butterflies um and (laughs) and then i became interested in proteins and how proteins function uh what did for unilever was looking for proteins in antarctica that could be used to make ice cream taste smoother um so obviously very very important research (laughs) um and then um uh, then I don't know. I, I kind of stumbled into it and around 2004, 2005. I there was just a, a buzz being generated about the microbiome, and I decided to start exploring microbial ecology—the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses, the archaea, the, the single-celled life on this planet—and what role it played in in our health, our um, our ecosystem functions, and you know everything. And.
0: You sound kind of excited about it now. Is, it, is this a new passion? I mean, do you, is this something you think you'll stick with?
2: Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a great time to be a microbial ecologist or a microbiologist. Uh, you know, we really we have a lot of fun tools to play with. We have an unprecedented ability to be able to examine this invisible world, you know, um, you look out your window or you're you know, driving in your car, you look, look out somewhere, you won't see um, any bacteria, but they're everywhere. Um, they are the the fabric of uh, of the world out, outside your window. They are in the air that you're breathing, they're on the surfaces you're touching, they're in, in your car. In fact, you have a trillion of them, in, or a hundred trillion of them inside you. And so we, we you know, we fundamentally need to understand what they're doing and how they're responding and how they're reacting to the world around them because that's how we're going to figure out um, how to make our lives better but you know it, it's just such a there's so much to discover um that, you know, every day we come up with a new uh, research project to actually explore this world it's um it's just a really exciting time
0: i guess one of the good things too is that there's actually some money being put toward research in this field
2: yeah, I mean, uh, it, people are starting to understand, especially in the medical area, um, looking at people's health, that the, the the microbes in our bodies are like another organ, right? So just like your heart or your liver or your lungs, uh, they they play a role. Um, most of them are inside your intestine, uh, but they're all over your skin. They're in your mouth. Uh, we find them in our lymph system. We find them, you know, uh, in our urogenital tracts. They, they are literally everywhere. Um, and if we can just figure out how they interact with our bodies and what role that might play um, in our health, then it, it will unlock um, a, uh, some of the great mysteries of why we get sick in many different situations. So, yep, yeah, people have taken that on board. They, they now understand that. And you know, the funding agencies and individual foundations and companies are piling in investment because this is seen as a... Um, one of the one of the areas of human health that have been ignored for such a long time, so it's you know it's now it's now receiving the uh, the attention it's due.
0: Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a minute. Well, I guess if
1: microorganisms you know make up ninety percent of our body, what's the other ten percent?
2: Yeah, well, it's a, that's, a, that's a numerical count, right? So, yeah, ninety percent of your cells are oh, microbial. Okay. 10% of your cells are human. But obviously, those, the 10% of your cells that are human are very heavy and dense, like your bones, like your muscles, like your fat cells. And so those cells take up most of the weight. The bacteria in your body, the microbes in your body, the fungi and the viruses and the bacteria, they really only weigh about maybe two, maybe three pounds. So you, that's the same weight as your brain. So if you think about... Um, if you think your brain's important, then you might want to consider the microbiome to be important as well.
0: Hmm. So then. Ninety percent is what percent of the ninety is the fungi versus the the bacteria? Seems like a real small bacteria,
2: piece. Yeah, well, the bacteria take up a huge portion of that, so they're probably you know somewhere in the region of um, uh, they, they they make up about eighty-five to eighty-nine percent of the cells in the system, and then you know the fungi are there; they're hanging around most of the time. They're sporulated. So they, you know, they're they're in, living in their spores, um, not germinating and uh, staying quite quiet um, uh, most of the time. Our human, the human body, has been evolved to really try and avoid fungi. Fungi are pretty, pretty nasty pathogens for us most of the time. Um, but we do find fungi in the body which are helpful to our health. Um, whereas the bacteria, the vast, vast, vast majority, 99.9999% are healthy for us. You know, we, we need them in our body. Uh, they help uh, They help train our immune system. They help our, our body develop properly from birth to uh, to death. And so we need them. They're vital to our health. And very few of them are actually uh, pathogenic or dangerous to us.
0: Hmm. And let's talk a little bit about the, the Home Microbiome Project. And for listeners that aren't familiar with it, maybe you could give us a little overview of, of what, you know what the goals were, or what the the impetus behind the home microbiome project was.
2: Sure. So, um, you know, most people would have heard of the hygiene hypothesis. This is the idea that we are now living in a world where we've we've taken um, cleanliness and sterility um, of our of our homes, of our offices, of our spaces to to such a high level that we've uh, started to. Reduce our exposure to biodiversity, um, and that may be impacting our health, leading to things like asthma and allergies, and and you know various other concerns of our modern day world. Um, and so, you know, with the home microbiome project, what we wanted to find out was, when people moved into a home, um, did they bring their microbes with them and leave them in the home, or did they, did the microbes, in the, including the bacteria and the fungi that were in the home, did they um, interact with the human. Um, so we focused mostly on the bacteria and we wanted to know, you know, um, how many bacteria that went from the human to the uh, home and how many bacteria went from the home to the human. But we did it in a very, very detailed way. So looking at people's noses and hands and feet and and swabbing counters and floors and uh, light switches, doorknobs, et cetera, all over the homes. And we did seven families around the US and um, uh, 10 homes, and examined them daily for um, a long period of time, about six weeks. And using that information, we were able to map the, the routes those microbes use to move around the space. And uh, you know, one of the key findings was that you, you really do just dump an awful lot of microbes when you move into a space. In your, in your uh, studio right now, if I swabbed the floor or if I swabbed your microphone, I would be able to identify you. As the uh, sole occupant of that space, um, because your microbial signature has been deposited in that space it's coming off your skin it's coming out of your mouth and your in your breath and in the little droplets of water that are there and it's just uh, each family from our study, the home microbiome project study, each family left this signature this this defined uh, fingerprint of their own microbiome in their space uh, so forensically we could identify the individual members of that family in that space in, uh, with a high, high level of rigor.
0: Hmm. And did they, in return, pick up bacteria that was there previously or did you find it was more the other way around? They contributed bacteria to the environment.
2: Yeah, this is, um, this is a really interesting point. They did. There was some transfer from the home to the people, but it was minuscule compared to the, the other way. You know, it was like um, firing a water pistol at someone with a water cannon. Um, the, the, the water cannon of bacteria coming off people into that space really dominated the space. So within um, a few hours of moving in, the, it was virtually impossible to detect the previous signature of the people that were there before. Um, uh, now, this is an important point. All of the people in our study were healthy. And healthy people have a rich and complex and biodiverse microbiome, right? There are lots of different species of bacteria living on them, um, and there's lots of those bacteria. That, that is one of the criteria of you being healthy. Um, and so, you know, when they moved into these spaces, they were epic shedders. They were just shedding bacteria everywhere, which means that, you know, their signal was robust when it moved into the space. But if they were sick, if they had a disrupted microbiome, they'd just taken an antibiotic or they were, you know, they'd, uh, they'd had some therapy or some surgery that, that caused um, the bacteria in their body to die off or, or you know, to suffer some kind of insult, um, then they would be far more ready to accept bacteria from their environment. And you know, this is the whole concept of real estate, right? You have, you have a certain amount of space inside your body for microbes to colonize, and they do a very good job at colonising it all. Um, but if you knock some of them back, if you open up some of the real estate in your body, then our microbes from the outside, who um, you know may have more nefarious uh, reasons to colonise you, um, uh, can can get uh, a foothold. And once they get a foothold, they can spread throughout your body.
0: Hmm. And the foothold that you were evaluating, where, where did that seem to take place? most commonly would it be touching things or inhaling things or drinking things or some combination
2: yeah so it looks like um the vast majority of the the movement was through um physical contact but you know the skin shedding each skin cell you shed on a day-to-day basis um probably has 10 to 20,000 bacteria bacterial cells associated with it um you know give or take <laughs> Hmm. Probably give or take ten or twenty thousand, but <laughs> on average, you're you're shedding an awful lot of skin cells in an hour. So just by sitting down in a room, um, your the this your standard skin sh- cell shed is releasing lots of microbes with it. You know, if I if I um, uh, alcohol put alcohol wipes on your hands, um, I will I'll knock back all of the environmental bacteria that have colonised your hand, but also knock back for a few. Uh, a few minutes the microbiome on your hands your own skin microbiome which is uniquely yours Um, but within a within about 30 seconds to a minute your microbiome is resurfaced on that space so if i touch a surface now and then i touch another surface a few minutes a few seconds later um, i will still be depositing you know thousands and thousands of microbial cells with each interaction and those those microbial cells that are deposited, I can I can then swab with the little cotton swab, um, pick them up, extract their DNA, and um, and, and identify who they
0: are. Now, well, oh, I got so many questions. I have to figure. All right, let's let's go back for a minute to genomics versus metagenomics. I, I hear those terms and I see those terms. Can you just for listeners differentiate between the two?
2: Yeah. So. Um if we put it in human terms, so the human genome um is the genome that is the DNA that you have in your cell, which is the blueprint for how your body should create itself right mm-hmm. so you know how it builds itself um but the metagenome um would be like me going into um a forest and blending in a giant mega blender. All of the plants and animals and, uh, and uh, everything you could see—the insects and the the ember and the uh, the the birds and everything—are just putting them all in there, squishing them down, blending them up, and then extracting their DNA from that soup, and then trying desperately, with some difficulty, to re um, reconstitute their genomes from this big genomic mess. Right? Hmm. So, you know, I've I've, I've blended everything together and then i have to try and figure out how which members of that community were there you know uh, i put the dna for the for the trees in one pot the dna for the the birds in another pot and the dna for the the tigers in another pot but um i then want to be able to infer how they're interacting you know which which birds landed on which trees which tigers ate which birds um from that massive dna and that is the horror of metagenomics. Um, <laughs> but it's the only way we can really understand microbes, right? You know, we can't see them, we, we can under a microscope, but they're very hard to tease apart. Um, there is some technology being developed that enables us to tease them apart, but essentially metagenomics for microbial communities enables us to stick them all in a blender, extract out their DNA, and then start teasing apart um, how they interact, you know, who, who produces food that somebody else is gonna eat, you know who um, who kills somebody else. You know, and those those microbial relationships can really be disentangled from metagenomic data. Hmm.
0: All right. Now, the next thing I wanted to ask is, how much do we really know about the genome and, and metagenomics? I mean, are we just scratching the surface here? Well, um,
2: we estimate that there's somewhere between 10 million um, and Maybe a hundred trillion or even a um, <laughs> I mean more a zillion i don't know what comes after that um, of of um, bacterial species on this planet, right so um, even with a study uh, as, as rich and detailed like the uh, the home study, we are only our ignorance is still epically profound, even in this very, very disrupted environment of the home. Um, the number of bacterial species we can find, numbers in the hundreds of thousands. And those hundreds of thousands of species are constantly changing. Um, They don't stay put. Uh, You know, if I sequence the genome of one of those organisms today, um, tomorrow it could have acquired new bits of DNA from some of its friends. And so its genomic profile would have changed. And that that really does make it very hard for us to um, track the, the genomic evolution of these organisms in these spaces, so yeah, you know we know we know a drop in the ocean, but you know every every drop in the ocean counts when you when you have to deal with something as profoundly important as the microbial health of uh, of buildings and of people.
0: Cliff, do you have anything? I just want to make sure you I get do. a chance to jump um, in. Go ahead.
1: And I guess because he finished up, it wouldn't be a bad. Time to uh, introduce it you know what I'm trying to do is determine is how your study of microbiome uh, you know what needs to be or I guess what are we doing wrong in, in regards to infection control and in healthcare settings
2: um, yeah that's a, that's a very big question um, the first, the first point is to realize that if you look at things from a microbes perspective, any built environment is a pretty bad environment. You know, um, it's not, it's not a nice, warm, wet place where they can, they can grow happily. It's it's a cold, dry place where it's, it's difficult for them to grow. Um, And that, um, you know, we've done that for a very deliberate reason. We've done that to try and reduce the burden of fungi and molds and, um pathogenic bacteria in our in our homes and our offices and our hospitals uh, to make sure that we stay healthy and safe. Um, the problem is you can go you can up do much of a good thing you know doing this we've saved hundreds of millions of lives over the last you know hundreds of years across the world um, sanitation proper treatment of air keeping um, populations um, away from bad pathogens which can easily spread but we now think there might be a way of um, folding back uh, or rolling back some of those objectives to help us improve the microbial health of a space and potentially reduce the likelihood that children or, or adults will develop autoimmune conditions such as allergies and asthma, um, you know, such as autism and, uh, and potentially even Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. All of these conditions have a link to a disrupted microbiota at some level. And that disruption of the microbiome side is a, a breakdown of the symbiotic relationships between you and your bacteria. In much the same way, the building and the building operator have a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria in the building. Um, you know, sick building syndrome, um, conditions where we see, you know, uh, people with um, with heightened uh, uh, um, a heightened susceptibility to getting uh, sickness from um, VOCs and, and, and various compounds in the air. I mean, a lot of this has microbial origins and roots. Um, so, But the problem is, uh, trying to figure out how to keep the right kinds of bacteria happy in this space is really it's, it's a tough job. We need to look at each organism and figure out what it needs, what it wants, and how to stop it from... You know, going into banditry almost stop it from uh, uh, becoming uh, dangerous to humans. Now, most organisms, when they're out there, um, have no desire to you know colonize human and then attack it. Um, they are benign. They're they're commensal. They just like living in us, or they have particular metabolic relationships with us. But when we stress them out, when we you know take away their foodstuffs, um, or when we cut open the just exposed them to toxic oxygen, which they don't really like at all. Or when we uh, when we pump the bodies full of antibiotics, some of them can um, rebel; they can almost riot in the body. And uh, when they when they do that, they attack the very hand that was feeding them the human body, because all they're doing is looking for food, right? And they're you know they have automatic systems inside them. If the if they detect a, a reduction in the amount of food in their environment, they'll turn on and um strategies in their in their cell to acquire more food. i mean it's it's as simple as that, and the best place to acquire food is the human body, and so you get situations where you know a, a, a normal bacteria or a normal fungus will, fungus will become dangerous, it will become pathogenic or virulent, we would say. um and once it becomes virulent, um you've got a real problem on your hands. so when most people come into a hospital, they come in and they're pumped full the of antibiotics. They come in and they have surgery. They come in and we physically treat the patient in a way that disrupts not just them and their cells, but also the bacteria and fungi that live inside them. And we're just trying to figure out that it may be this, it may be this disruption, this insult that we pay to these organisms that could have a major role to play in healthcare associated infections. So you know when you when you go into the hospital and you have surgery and you get sick it's it's all too easy to blame the doctor um, or the nurse or the heir inside that room. We might actually need to start looking at the the, the bacteria you brought in with you and how they were treated when they're in the hospital. and we're starting to come up with biotherapeutics which may be able to help us keep them happy um while they' you know, while you're undergoing your surgery, and if we can keep the bacteria happy while you're in surgery, you might be able to significantly reduce the burden of healthcare-associated infections in, in healthcare settings. What's a biotherapeutic? So a biotherapeutic is just a, a, thera- a, therapeutic, <laughs> a therapy, which, um, a, a compound, which enables us to treat um, the biology of a system, right? So in this case, we'd be, look, we'd be looking at ways of providing those bacteria with the food they want at the site, of surgery so that they never detect low food and they they stay happy and they don't become virulent um so we would call adding the right food in the right way in the design of that uh, application how we get that food how we package it how we deliver it to the bacteria that's a biotherapeutic in our in our words thank you
0: so would would probiotics be a, a biotherapy
2: well absolutely um and you know we've you know there's a, if you go to any, any uh, grocery store, you'll probably find a, bar, a, a probiotic aisle, and uh, you know we find a lot of probiotics and a lot of talk about the potential health benefits of probiotics, but you know that's a really enormous catch-all term um, that we fundamentally don't understand. Um, probiotics in and of themselves are just um, bacteria that are given to a human to um, have a desired Um, health impact or health outcome Um, there are very very few uh, probiotics on the market today which have any real um, hard clinical data to support um, the claims which uh, are made on the packaging Um, some of them that uh, we know a lot about have been incredibly uh, useful in treating certain conditions especially inflammatory conditions so Some of these probiotics can actually be used to treat inflammation um, by adding that probiotic into your diet, into your gut. Um, you can reduce systemic inflammation in the whole of your body and treat conditions such as irritable bowel disorder. So you can imagine if we could figure out in a building environment how to add the right kinds of bacteria it could almost come up with a building probiotic, then adding that bacteria in to the environment or adding the right kind of fungus or the right kind of virus into that environment could have significant implications for improving the health and maybe even the productivity of the people that work
0: or live in that environment. Wow. You've know, you got me thinking. I've got a bunch of questions. We have to stop and thank our sponsors, what we call our halftime, but you know, it, it's fascinating to think about adding bacteria to the environment when we've always looked at it the opposite way and then you know are we cleaning too much are we cleaning the wrong way these are all great questions that um, we'll try and get into a little bit in the second half we'll be back with the second half of our interview with dr jack gilbert great stuff Uh, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors and thanks to our association sponsors the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The
1: Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training. Certification, standards, and events. Their website is prsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers.
0: Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends in
1: Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors, for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com.
0: And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us.
1: And of course, our marquee sponsors john don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop visit them at their website J-O-N-D-O-N.com. that's john don.com
0: clean facts the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals check them out at clean Iq.net
1: and healthy indoors magazine a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and
0: products. All right. We're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Jack Gilbert. Just fascinating stuff. We Before we broke, we, we talked a little bit about hand washing, and I, it made me just think of this question. So, it sounded to me like if I wash my hands and I immediately touch a surface, I'm kind of taking away part of my defense, and I'm going to be more likely to pick up what's on that surface. Was, did I misunderstand what you said?
2: Um, no, uh, you, you extrapolated what I said to, to, to something, another point, which is actually quite interesting. So um, we believe that if you have a disrupted microbiome, if you don't have a healthy um, you know, um, a biodiverse and very abundant microbiome inside you, then you are more likely to be able to pick up bacteria from the environment. That's true. Um, and now, uh, you know, the the idea would be uh, if there was a nasty pathogen in the environment and you and you had a disrupted microbiome, then um, that nasty pathogen would be it'd be a lot easier for it to get inside your body and and do its mischief. But the problem lies in our appreciation of what is disruption now um, there's there's a lot of concern over hand washing and um, a lot of misinformation about hand washing Um, if uh, a lot of this stems from the use of um, certain chemicals to in antibacterial soaps Um, you know there's a a a, a very bad situation with a particular chemical that was used in antibiotic soaps that appeared to um, actually have negative impacts upon hormone levels in children so you know, if they were using this antibiotic so too much, the the chemical actually altered their hormone levels um, inappropriately, and made them made them unwell. So um, you know, that's something we want to avoid. But if we look at um, the importance of hygiene uh, for reducing disease transmission in say a classroom or a workspace, then there's really nothing wrong with just you know using an alcohol-based um, solution to wa- wash your hands. Um, It really that doesn't have a big impact on your microbiome. Um, Your hand microbiome goes very deep. Uh, Your skin is a very complex uh, organ, um, and what you see on the very surface is literally just the surface. Um, The the uh, the Grand Canyon of your fingers, for example, or your hand has um, has an immense microbial uh, diversity, and it goes right deep down into the skin. And so if you sterilize your hands with an alcohol wash, um, those bacteria come right back. I mean, they bounce back very quickly. And that bounce back um, means that you, ha- you haven't redisrupted disrupted your microbiome. You have just made sure that um, if you touch somebody who was sick or you, you know, touched a, a surface where there might have been a sick person interacting with it, you um, have killed whatever was um, transferred in that initial um, interaction. And so you've got you've to balance it, right? Hand-washing helps. It really does help, especially with getting rid of viruses. If there's lots of sick people with lots of viruses at work, yeah, wash your hands, you know. Um, But it doesn't necessarily help you with um, anything else in the system.
0: So we didn't talk much about viruses. Maybe you could touch on that for just a moment. How prevalent are these viruses in our body and in our indoor environment?
2: Well, viruses in your body, I mean, the viruses that attack bacteria, there are probably 10 times more viruses that attack bacteria in your body than there are bacteria. So, you know, if you've got 100 trillion bacteria, you've probably got um, 1,000 trillion viruses in there. So that's a lot. Mm. Um, Viruses that uh, make you sick, uh, uh, viruses that attack humans, um, there are are many of those, rhinoviruses, cold virus, flu virus, um, Ebola, these are very nasty bugs, which when they get inside you, make you sick to varying degrees. Um, and those um, are easily transmitted via human to human contact. So if I shake someone's hand, I might pick it up. And then if, I, if I've got it on my hand and I wipe my nose or I you know, eat, eat some food and I transmit it inside my body, it can, it can potentially have a, a major impact on my health. That being said... It's, um, it's very difficult um, to do that if you have a robust microflora on your hand. So there's there's a balance that needs to be dealt with and it's, um, it's not one that we are fully understand at the moment. Uh, I, you know, our, our, again, our ignorance is still profound in this area. We we put in measures to make sure people stay safe so that epidemiology um, is a study of, of our ability to control the spread of disease. Um, but we we fundamentally don't understand the mechanisms by which people do get sick. Sometimes, you know, we have some very good understanding in some instances, and very poor understanding in others. And it's, our knowledge is very incomplete. So, if somebody has a rich microbiome, they may that may protect them against a virus infection. But there may be something else in their life. They may. Um, maybe under a lot of stress or maybe their hormone levels are unbalanced and, and therefore they are actually susceptible to the viral infection even with a robust microbiome. So each person is, is, has a unique experience when they interact with the system. Um, no, no one person is you know, the same as any other person. Even identical twins have um, different microbiota. It's slightly more similar for identical twins, but uh, overall they, um, they have a very different microbial experience so they can respond differently to different disease states. Hmm.
0: Now, I I want to read a a statement, a a sentence or two, from an article that you sent me. It's called Our Interface with the Built Environment, Immunity, and Indoor Microbiota. And the, the sentence is reducing humidity, air conditioning, and reducing the availability of complex substrates, soils, woods, through choices in building materials, are likely to significantly impact microbial biomass and diversity of microbiota. This will influence the source of our body's microbiome, which could have untold consequences to our physiological, immunological, and neurological development. So I guess, are, are we saying there that maybe we're making our environment too sterile
2: yeah um you know we 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 never make it sterile um sterile would insinuate there's no life there at all but we we definitely reduce the number of organisms which can live in this environment and as i said before we we've done that deliberately because um you know when you've got a lot of nasty things in the environment you get a lot of human beings together and you put them in this small space then those bugs can spread very quickly so having that uh, sterility, for want of a better word, um, has actually helped us. It's, it's you know, been one of our major um, success stories in public health. Um, but uh, we may have gone too far. Now, when a child is born, um, when the amniotic sac ruptures um, and the baby is born, the, the child, we believe, is actually quite s- sterile. You know, we don't think they have many bacteria in the womb or any bacteria in the womb. Um, and then when they come into contact with their mother for the first time, they're colonized by the bacteria from their mother or from their father who hugs them or through whoever else touches them. And they get, uh, they get these doses of bacterial um, organisms which then colonize their body, right? And then actually mother's milk has its own microbiome in it. And um, the mother actively recruits bacteria from her gut into the breast tissue and they, those bacteria are pumped into the baby, um, this, is, uh, this is supposed to be, this is the way we, our bodies have evolved, um, in order to um, provide that baby with the right kind of microbiome to help it digest its food, its milk, but also to test its immune system and, and also protect it against pathogens from the environment. But then every single other interaction that child has um, shapes its microbiome, you know, uh, what if it goes near animals if it gets uh, you know licked by a dog if it if it grows up on a farm if it um if the, if the baby is uh, you know at a creche all morning or if it's you know uh, living in a in a you know a 10th a tenth, a tenth floor high-rise flat and it you know it, uh, or a apartment and it's not interacting with the outside world every single um thing you do daily changes your microbial influence and the thing about children is their microbiome doesn't stabilize until they're about three years old. So that, that, two, to th- that, that two or three years of their early development, um, they are being bombarded by different microbes. And uh, because their bodies are changing so much, their microbiome is changing so much, and the interaction between the microbes and their body shapes how they develop, Right. So we believe that this can lead to neurological conditions, depression, anxiety, because the bacteria in our body influence our brain development. They also influence the way our brain thinks by um, changing uh, or influencing uh, nerve impulses from our gut up into our brain, and they also alter our hormone levels, and they also play roles in you know, whether we put on weight or don't put on weight. Uh, it, it, fundamentally, they are intricately associated with our health. So if you change, you know, and bear in mind, we evolved to grow up in a very complex, very rich microbial experience. Um, it was unavoidable. <laughs> um, uh, by removing that experiment experience, we've, had, we've uh, done a couple of things. We've, we've kept ourselves alive longer. Um, we now live almost twice as long as, um, we probably should do, uh, for our, for our body and for our species. Um, uh, but we also have in our bodies, all of these, um, uh, microbiota from the built environment and the built environment microbiome is purely a human microbiome. So when a baby is being, is growing up in a house, it's only really being exposed to the bacteria from the other people living in that house. Right. Um, and you know, if they lived in houses before them and before them, as we've had for four or five generations in these kind of houses, um, you get a situation where the child doesn't get a rich microbial experience; it gets a human microbial experience. If you throw that kid outside and you, you know, grow up on a farm, and the kids, um, you know, next to you while you're milking the cows, or you know, it's rolling around in the dust with the the puppies, or it's uh, you know, it's um, interacting with horses, or you know, going out and working in the fields then its microbiome is going to be significantly more enriched than somebody growing up in a high-rise apartment and that may be the reason why some children develop um, allergies and asthma um, mm. because they have a disrupted microbial flora uh, due to a lack of microbial experience with the world uh, they keep growing up on the farm is much less likely to develop that microbial um uh, sorry the immune uh, disorders
0: now oh. So, you, you kind of answered a, a text question that came in, and it says, um, because we spend so much time inside, we're missing opportunities to develop a good biomass from outside. So, if, if you, you know, I don't know if you have any children, but if you had some young children, w- would you recommend making sure they get outside more often, that they get into other environments besides just being in the indoor environment they came from?
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, I live in Chicago. I have two small boys, the eight and five. I wouldn't, uh, I I literally uh, practice what I preach. I mean, those boys, I throw them outside whenever it's possible. Obviously, when it's freezing, it's very difficult to get them outside. But we actually brought a dog. We rescued a dog from Kentucky um, about two years ago in order to increase uh, the amount of microbial experience these kids get exposed to. So my my children now have a dog. His name is Bo. Um, and Bo goes outside and runs around in the garden or I take him for a run on the prairie, or he, he, he has a rich microbial experience, as you can imagine, a dog does. And then he brings those outdoor bacteria, the bacteria from the soil, the plants he interacts with, the dead birds he picks up. He brings all of those bacteria back into the house. Um, you know, And some people might think that's a bit gross, right? But what it looks like is that increasing that microbial exposure, increasing the diversity of microbes in my home is actually probably playing a significant role in reducing the likelihood that my children will suffer from the autoimmune conditions and atopies such as you know, asthma and, and food and skin allergies. So um, you know, the dog was recruited into the family in order to play that kind of dynamic role. Um, you know, in in Chicago, it's too hot in the summer and it's too cold in the winter. There's only a short period of time during the year when it's really amenable to going outside and playing in the woods. But you know, during those uh, four or five months, that's what the kids do. You know, they go outside, they they play in the woods, they they muck around, they they get dirty, and I fully embrace that. I even take them down to other people's farms and I you know make sure they interact with the animals. You know, like a like a farm party, just keep on. Uh, yeah, you know, go and go and hug that sheep. <laughs> go and play with that pig. You know, get 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 some more um,
0: microbial experience
2: into your body. Uh,
0: and Cliff, I I don't I want to make sure you get a chance to jump in if you had a question.
1: Actually, I, I'd like to go back to just some of the things that we do. You know, in hospitals, I I think that you know we disinfect the rooms. Uh, I think certain types of materials are treated. You know, to be uh, biostatic. You know, um, You know, they add certain, you know, chemistry that, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily kill things, but it tends to, you know, prevent them from growing. Um, I'm just wondering if you could comment on that, as well as I think that in our industry, they tend to use a lot of ATP for sampling. It was used, I think, originally in food and for food sanitation, And now they're, you know, trying to utilize this to determine how clean things are or how clean things aren't. And, you know, it would seem to me if, um, you know, we we have this number, you know, from the ATB and we're not sure exactly what it is. So if you could comment on those things, I'd appreciate it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know... The lexicon of, um, of or our vocabulary to describe what is clean is, is again woefully, woefully um, uh, uh, you know, inappropriate potentially or uh, at least uninformed. We just don't understand what clean really means in, in terms of what we think it means. You know, clean, as far as we've been led to believe over the last hundred years or so of advertising, is uh, domestos. Sorry, I mean like bleach, sterilised environments where. Um, you know, you can be sure you could lick that and you wouldn't pick up anything but um that's not really the way in which the world works. Um, uh, you know, clean should be a healthy environment right um and we want to, so we want to balance keeping bad pathogens and dangerous bugs away uh, from our homes and our hospitals and those environments from but but also making sure that there is a rich microbial experience in that space, which, if somebody has a a, a disrupted flora, can play a role in improving the likelihood that their health will be maintained. Um, we've been uh, providing probiotics to patients after surgery, uh, which seems to significantly reduce the likelihood that they will suffer from um, a uh, post-surgical infection, and also seems to reduce the the, the incident, incidence of um, post-surgical depression, so they feel better as well, you know, afterwards. Uh, and that appears to be maybe just filling the real estate inside their body with something um, anything benign um, that could play a role in keeping their body happy so the 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 way in which we describe cleanliness in a building even if somebody gives you a number um, it just may not be appropriate but the problem is um, it's all very well for me to say that but setting an industry standard takes an awful lot of time and it's 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 a very complex and and, uh, politically fraught process. Our best understanding is if we keep things clean, people stay alive longer. Um, The problem is we now may need to adjust that to say, yeah, they're staying alive longer, but is their quality of life being impacted? Are we seeing people with more um, non-life-threatening, but their quality of life-threatening disorders that maybe we could treat? I'm not saying we go back to having public health nightmares of the, uh, of the 19th century, I'm saying we, we keep in on mind our practices are working, but they, they may be hurting as well. And we need to just augment them slightly, improve them in ways in which we are only just starting to learn how to do, but that could improve it. And so number of cells in an environment or number of colony forming units of bacteria or fungi that I pick up from a surface it's it's a it's it's it, it's not it's not a useful measure for understanding the health of that environment. Um, it's a useful measure for determining the sterility of that environment. Um, but even then, it's it's not necessarily uh, ideal. You know, those the culture plates, those colony-forming unit plates, miss out lots of bugs which don't grow on those plates, right. um, but they're still alive in the environment. Uh, so, yeah, it's no. it's complex. It's
0: always complex. Let's go back to the indoor environment let's go back to the home and i i don't remember whether we were talking about home i think we were talking about home and and when i read that quote um the about the you know the fact that we're keeping our we're, we're using more sterile I, I can't think of the right word either uh products in our homes and and we need a diverse uh, microbiome within our homes and but i don't want to get the i want to clarify are you saying we're, we're not ready yet to add bacteria to the indoor environment we don't we don't know what we would add do we we
2: don't um, you know I, I have some ideas and we are uh, constantly doing experiments right now to try and figure out um, if adding some of these bugs in has a beneficial effect but we can't do that in human beings very easily the experiment is obviously unethical um, you can't just go around experimenting on people. Uh, so we use animal models, uh, mice and rats, as a as a test. Um, so we you know we we have mice and rats that are susceptible to allergies and asthma, and we're adding into their built environment using some you know, rather novel nanotechnology solutions to to embed the right kinds of bacteria in structures which those animals interact with. Um, we are figuring out ways in which the the that the delivery of those bacteria to those animals in the built environment could actually improve or reduce the likelihood they would suffer from a severe asthmatic attack or or a food allergy um, and so if it works in animals and we get approval from the uh, from the fda we could move forward with a human trial whereby we would start designing particular almost building probiotics to create a, um, a a way to manipulate the built environment in a very sophisticated and controlled manner um, to elicit a, a specific response. The, the way to get around that is more the shotgun approach, right? So we bought a dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> a dog could bring a, a very nasty pathogen into my home somehow um, and make us all sick. It's just incredibly unlikely. I'm more likely to be um you know more likely to be hit by a satellite than than uh, that to happen but it's it's also highly um it's a, it's a highly undirected un unmanaged way of increasing the microbial diversity in my home and i don 't know that the dog is providing the right kinds of bacteria you know that my dog might not be the, uh, the 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 bringer of the good bugs he might he might just bring some bugs which are you know helpful but not super helpful so we we need to uh, understand that in a more sophisticated way and the home microbiome project was designed to do that it was designed to try and figure out the 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 or should i say map um the uh, the pathways by which microbes enter the room and uh, or to enter the building and how quickly they do that and that's it's, it's, it's a very important point right uh, this is microbial cartography we are trying to build the next generation of maps that can help us to understand how to manipulate that environment, as we've been manipulating it for the last 100 years, but manipulate that environment to benefit people's health, full stop. Um, and we're not going to erode or wipe out you know, the last uh, 100 years of uh, sophisticated experimental design that's shown that the removal of, of moulds and fungi, for example, have a beneficial effect. We know they do. But if we add back in some of the right ones, maybe we could have a particular um, uh, impact that would be valuable for human health.
0: Okay. And if you could, just did you do any uh, evaluation of the fungi during the home project?
2: Uh, we didn't in the home project. We, well, we did, but not in the published study. Um, uh, we know what fungi are there. There were, there were molds. There were, there were funguses. We know that molds and funguses have a particular uh, role to play in managing the VOCs uh, in the room, as uh, the chemicals in the air, um, and you know and that they can have an impact. There's a there's a great study recently showing ergot fungus uh, releases hallucinogenic um, almost VOCs uh, um, into room spaces, and it can make people believe they're seeing ghosts. Um, which <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Maybe all ghost sightings are have been uh, driven entirely by. Um, uh, houses that have uh, got fungus infestation um, that's why you see it in old houses you feel creepy because right? you're actually getting a slight uh, you know, LSD trip off of uh, off the fungus in the room that's making you see things um,
0: I saw that
2: article
0: I'm sorry I saw that article and I, I kind of thought wow that's, that's interesting but we've got a ways to go before we prove that one I guess
2: no exactly yeah I mean it's, it's, it's fun more than anything, but you know it, it's, uh, it's another piece of a puzzle which you know, maybe solved sometime in the future.
0: It's an interesting but, you know, theory we, I mean we look it, at, it's an interesting theory sorry. at least: It's an
2: interesting theory it's a fun theory. I like it.:
0: Yes. yes. But we are
2: looking at fungi in hospitals, we're looking at fungi in, um, in uh, cities in urban environments, um, trying to understand the diversity, the ones that are good, the ones that are potentially harmful, and how we can change the built environment conditions, how we can manage those buildings to um, improve the outcomes of the healthy or the health-causing um, fungi and knock back the uh, the outcomes of the uh, ones that are dangerous or pathogenic or maybe make us feel like we're seeing ghosts.
0: Well, we're running low on time. I have. One question, I have to get in. Cliff, do you have one? Uh, sure. The, go, go ahead, and then I'll get mine.
1: Okay. Um, we're, we're, did you study a hospital in Chicago, a new hospital? Was that your study?
0: Yes.
2: So, yeah, we, we looked at every single day for 365 days from two months before it was open to uh, or operational to and uh, um, 10 months following the start of operations.
1: And if you had to summarize it in a sentence or
2: two, um, what did you find? We are, we're still exploring the data. It's an enormous data set. But it, it, One of the interesting points we found, if someone had an antibiotic while they were in hospital, they were more likely to acquire microbes from their hospital room um, than they were to deposit them. But if they, if they hadn't taken an antibiotic, then that hospital room looked, started to look like their microbiome, just the same as they did in the houses in, um, in a matter of hours.
0: Interesting. And, and I've got a question on uh, disaster restoration. I, I'm not sure if you're working with, uh, I think it's Dr. Miller, Shelly Miller out in, in University of Colorado. We've got her coming on in a few weeks. And I think she was doing some work similar to this, but before and after uh, water damage, et cetera. Are you familiar with that at all?
2: I am indeed. And there's a number of researchers looking into this in fungi and bacteria.
0: and what what are your what do you think um going in i mean obviously i can't you know I can't ask you um what the results will be, but you know what are your thoughts going in what what interests you with respect to that topic
2: so from my perspective it's the ability to um, biotechnologically design the right kinds of bugs to help reduce uh, the instance of um, bad causing, no, uh, disease-causing fungi, disease-causing bacteria after you've had a flood in the home, for example. So um, you know we may be able to design um, surfaces uh, that are impregnated with bacteria. So that if you do have a flood, um, those uh, the the fungi in that environment find themselves uh, unable to uh, compete um, for space. They they the bad organisms can't get a hold. So your home never gets into a situation where it is severely mouldy, and we we know we can do this because certain bacteria um, prevent certain fungi from germinating, right? And certain viruses prevent certain fungi and certain bacteria from even becoming active and make they make them dormant. And so if we can figure out how to manage um, those kinds of dormancy or, or, or non-germinating forming uh, uh, bacteria and uh, viruses put them into surfaces, then we could prevent even a a severely moist-ridden environment from becoming dangerous or toxic, and significantly improve the likelihood of um, uh, uh, a rapid and successful restoration.
0: I guess I should have asked this from the beginning. Now, so you impregnate this product with bacteria. Don't the bacteria need a certain environment to continue to be viable, or or it doesn't matter that they're... In a dry, you know, fairly, um, you know, mid-range type of temperature.
2: Yeah, a lot of a lot of bugs can handle um, extremes, right? Um, and they can go, they enter into a phase of dormancy while they're in those extremes. You know, the the dry mid-temperature surface, for example, like on the wall, um, is pretty nasty for them. But they can enter dormancy during that period, and then when they interact or when they're released or when, they, uh, when, they, um, when somebody interacts with that surface or they live in that surface, the, the, the um, delivery of those bugs into the environment uh, actually um, activates them. So when they get onto the person's skin or they get into a person's body, they become active. Um, now, if you suddenly flooded a, a room, then the uh, room, the moisture in itself, would activate all of those microbes in there. The temperature gradient is not a problem. It's mostly just the lack of water. Huh.
0: Okay. That's great. And, and I know you did it. There's so many more questions, but we've got to let you go. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, we really appreciate having you join us. We've gotten all kinds of interesting comments already here. I've got a couple emails, um, some very interesting comments there, and people who are listening are highly respected. So we uh, much appreciate you joining us here this week, and um, I hope we can get you back sometime. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I really right. enjoyed it. Thank you, Jack, Doctor Jack Gilbert. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, Doctor Jack Gilbert. That was fascinating, Cliff. Um, great time, and thanks for you uh, to you for helping out. Fantastic. Uh, and of course, to my engineer, John. You got to have faith. Right. Our growing group of loyal listeners. And uh, Cliff, did you have a final word? No, I didn't. no, I'm good. Very good. All right, we'll be back. Oh, by the way, next week we're going to do a little um, discussion with, we've got um, Maury Astley and I think Brian O'Halleck's coming on, and we may have a few other people coming on. We're getting into the uh, disaster restoration conference season and it's time to talk to those folks see how things are coming along with the new council of associations and then uh, Cliff and I will be hopefully joining you in a couple maybe 3 weeks from the RIA conference so we've got a lot of great stuff planned as i mentioned we've got Dr. Shelly Miller coming in in May and uh, we're going to continue doing our best to get these great researchers and and thinkers on the show as often as possible this was a lot of fun so everybody please come back and join us next Friday we'll be back it's my birthday April 17th at noon with the next broadcast of IAQ Radio this has been
1: another IAQ Radio production